Thanks, Jordan. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, we pray, please, that as we wrestle with this word, that you might bless uh, our time together, that you would cause us, please, to be um, able to see more clearly what you have done for us in Jesus, to be captured by the, the wonder of it, and uh, encouraged, please, to uh, give thanks, to rejoice and enjoy uh, the beautiful thing that's been established by his death. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the great things that makes the Christian message glorious, good, astonishing, unique, one of the great things that makes the Christian message, all of that, is found in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, this is uh, one of those passages that draws attention to the incredible things about the Christian faith. We looked at uh, one, another passage last week and many, of course, the weeks before. But last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, which uh, helps us see uh, that God's very purposes are centred on one man. That man that walked the streets of Palestine, Jerusalem, Galilee, um, 2,000 years ago. Uh, that man, the man Jesus the Bible says, was the very reason for creation. That man is the reason why you exist. Uh, incredible thing to be said of a person, that Jesus is such a figure. Um, the Bible is, it makes incredible claims about the, the person of Jesus, unique claims about a religious leader. And it's worth just observing, um, when, when I considered Christianity all those years ago, and you might be here tonight exploring kind of religion, and wondering uh, what to make of the world and everything in it and how you fit and so on. When I went through that process many years ago, uh, I wasn't from a Christian home, uh, the, the one thing that motivated me to look at the Christian faith first was an awareness that the claims it was making were like no other religious claim. That, that is, the person of Jesus was, uh, he, he was being said to be God in the flesh, not just another human who makes uh, prophetic utterances, but God. And, and it struck me, as it struck many others, of course, too, that if, he is, if what he is saying is true, then I don't need to look at another religion. Because if he's true, then no one else can be. And so I started there. Uh, and as you can see, I came to the conclusion it was true. But uh, the person of Jesus unique in all of history. But what we look at tonight is the evidence that what Jesus came to do is unique in human history. Unique in religious uh, in the world of religions. It, it, what he came to do was vast, all-encompassing. What he came to do is something that no other religious leader even attempted to do, even thought they might do. And what Jesus came to do is summed up in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Grab your Bible if you haven't got it open there, make sure you've got it in your lap and you can look at it now. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 Look down at the text there, uh, you go through those words and by that will we're being made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Here's those last three words, once for all. That little phrase, which is the translation of one Greek word, that little phrase captures the uniqueness of the Christian message about what Jesus did. What he did was once for all. It was once and for all. It was once and done. Now, I want to actually help you have a sense of why, 
that's such a significant thing to say that Jesus came and did what he did once for all. I want to show you um, that it's saying that something, something no one else has said, no one else has claimed. And I want to compare it, in fact, to other religions to try to drive that point home. So we're going to dive into Islam and, and um, Hinduism and Buddhism and so on as well, very briefly. But let's come back to the passage. Let's start the text at chapter 10, verse 1. And um, see if we can uh, weave our way through here and, and see what this is all teaching and how that once for all language is so significant. Well, the passage starts, as you can see there at verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now, the law that he's talking about is the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law that spoke about the need to set up... Um, uh, a temple and priesthood and sacrifices. Uh, that law required these things, a law that actually includes the commandments of God and so on. And what he's saying here is that that law is a shadow of the good things to coming, not the realities themselves. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. For this reason, it can never, by the sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. What you find through this, uh, these first four verses is that the author makes an incredible claim, which is that the Old Testament sacrificial system set up by God with the law, the temple priest and sacrifices, what he's saying here is that that whole system could not work. It couldn't achieve reconciliation between humanity and God. It couldn't make perfect those who draw near, drew near to God using that system. It, did, it couldn't work. And in fact, he says it again and again. Verse 2, otherwise were they not, would they have not stopped being offering? If it did work, why did they keep doing it? For, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have had to feel guilty for their sins. Um, so it, this thing didn't work. You know it didn't work because it had to be repeated endlessly and endlessly. I don't know if you've ever had rust in your car. But, but when, you, when you cut the rust out and paint over it, you can be certain that in 12 months' time you're going to have to do it again because it doesn't fix it. And the fact that you have to keep doing it and keep doing it tells you that what you're doing is not fixing it, it's just patching. And what you've got with the sacrificial system, the fact that it had to keep being done again and again and again, repeated endlessly, uh, this author tells us was evidence that it didn't actually work. It didn't deal with the sin problem, the problem we have between us and God. Now, what it did do was two things. So it, it didn't solve the sin problem, but what it did, and I'll take you through these two, two things uh, in order. Um, what it did, verse 3, those sacrifices were, in fact, an annual reminder of sins. They weren't intended to fix the problem. They were intended to be an annual reminder of sin, to drive home the point that we do have a sin problem and that problem's very serious and needs to be dealt with. And so for this ancient people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, um, the sacrificial system functioned to do this exact thing. Now, how did it do that? Well, it did it in a bunch of ways. And let me try and explain it for you. Um, what the law required was the establishment of a thing called the temple. Tabernacle became the temple, a massive building, which is almost as big as this block of land. It was huge. And let me illustrate what the temple looked like by our building here. So the temple was designed with a series of um, uh, outer, inner, right in the inner kind of rooms. And um, if you think of it like the foyer into the main room and there's the curtain 
behind the curtain was known in the temple as the Holy of Holies. Because the way the temple was constructed and the way God talked about it was um, that he would make his name dwell in that room behind the curtain, uh, closed off from everybody. And he, he set it up so that the temple was a place where he could dwell amongst the people. He wanted to be amongst his people, but he couldn't just be amongst his people because of the sin problem. He was a holy God and to have sin come into his presence would destroy the sinner. And so he set up this temple where all the nations could come into the foyer. They could come into the temple close to God, but not that close. Whereas God's chosen people could come into the main room, closer to his presence. But if you look at chapter 9, have a look at chapter 9, verse uh, 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room, this kind of room here, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room behind the curtain, entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood. So what the writer is telling us is is that to come into the presence of like where God's name was. Now, of course, God is is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's present. But he particularly sort of gave this picture of this is where I'm going to make my real glory be. And and he set it up so that um, there's only one person out of all of you can come that close to me, the high priest. And only once a year can he do that. It's called the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. But he can only do it, chapter 9, verse 7, if he sheds blood. And now what does that mean? Does that mean he kind of has to nick himself when he's shaving? Although he probably didn't shave at all, he wasn't allowed to shave. But did he have to cut? No, no, no. He'd have to bring an animal. And he'd have to um, lay hands on the animal. And this process of laying hands on the animal would transfer his sin and guilt upon the animal. And then that animal would be killed to deal with his sin that's been transferred to the animal so that the high priest himself, a sinner, has had his sin dealt with so that he could go in to be with God and himself not be killed. And what did it teach people? It taught people that sin is so serious that you can't just waltz into the presence of God and live. If a sinner comes into the presence of the Holy God, they will die. And the only hope for the sinner in the presence of God is that someone else has died in their place, an animal whose blood has been shed. And the lesson is, sin brings death. When sin comes into the presence of God, it brings death because sin is so serious. Now, what is sin? Well, sin is, um, sin is our failure to be what God has made us to be. It's us falling short of his expectation and standard. We were made to be people of truth and we lie. We were made to be people of love and we're selfish and greedy. Uh, we are made to be people in relationship with God and we've rebelled against him. We're sinners. That's what sin is. It's to be in opposition to God, to be opposed to God, to fail to live the life that you're meant to live. And for most of us, we think about that kind of thing, the thing called sin, and find ourselves going, yeah, sure. We're not perfect. You know, there are some better than others. But it's not that big a deal. Well, what this passage is telling us is that the whole system of Israel, its temple, its priests, its sacrifices, was set up to say it is a big deal. Human sin is a deep offence to God. 
because it is fueled by pride, human arrogance and rebellion. It's not just a slipping up. And this sin is so serious that death needs to happen when God is confronted by sin. But he sets up this system, the sacrifices, so that the blood of bulls and goats, they might suffer in the place so that my sin is dead. But he keeps saying, verse 4, just to be clear here, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. It, it, couldn't, it didn't work because it had to keep being done again and again. So it, it, it had to be repeated. It couldn't work. Sin is serious. And I might just, just apply this to us for a moment. Um, I, I think I've said this often, but I'll, I'll probably keep saying it often. There's, there's a very big division in humanity. And it's not the division between uh, races. Yeah, you know, someone's Chinese, someone's uh, um, European or something. It's not the division of race. It's not the division of class. It's not the division of age. It, it's a division between the way you think about sin... And you can divide humanity neatly in two. There are those people in our world who are, who are of the opinion that, yes, we're not perfect, uh, we're sinners, but God is a God of such gentleness, happiness, love, that he doesn't really care. And though imperfect as I am, I'll front up before him and it'll all be okay. We're basically good people who slip up and God will be... That's a massive number of people in our world believe that. But there are another chunk of people in our world who are convinced of a different thing, which is that sin, human sin, is so serious, God is so holy, that when confronted by, on the last day, when we stand before him, the God who is love is also holy and just and will condemn sin in human life and it will mean condemnation and judgment. We are basically sinful, who can sometimes do good things. Now that difference of opinion neatly divides everyone in this room. There'll be some of you sitting here tonight who go, I don't get that. I, I, I just like to think of God as a God who loves everybody, all the differences and let people, as long as they live a life of not hurting anyone, it will all be okay. You think people are basically good and you'll be sitting here tonight going, yeah, yeah, that's me. You're very welcome to be with us. It's great you're with us. But it's just important to go, yeah, that is where I sit on this issue. I can't convince you of this tonight, but I want you to notice the Bible is saying something very different about our nature and our relationship with God and the status of things. And, and to come to a conviction of what the Bible says changes everything. What the Bible is saying is that God is holy, we are sinful, and on the day when he comes to judge us, he won't see us as basically good who slip up, he'll see us as basically sinful, corrupted, rebellious, proud and will be deserving of condemnation. Now, now, which are you tonight? Which are you? Can I urge you to explore the evidences for the Bible's view of sin? Because if you are wrong, if you think it'll all be okay and it doesn't matter, if you are wrong, your whole eternity hangs on that thought. There's almost no more important issue to wrestle with 
then whether or not we're basically good or basically sinful, whether or not God is just a grandfather who just lets you in no matter what, or whether he's a holy, righteous judge of the universe, working that out is everything. Now, this part of the Bible insists that God, verse 3, set up this whole system in the ancient world to teach his people that sin is serious, that when sin comes into the presence of God, it gets killed and those that carry it get killed and unless some other animal dies in the place, you're dead. Massively important. You see, that's what this sacrificial system taught. It, it, it wasn't designed to work because how can the bloods of good and bull take away sin? It was designed to teach sin but it was also designed to do something else and it's there in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now what is that saying? The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming. Let me explain shadows, uh, I've got one just here, here we go. Um, <laughs> When you see a shadow on the floor and you're standing there with a wall and you can't see me and you can, you, you can see the shadow emerging, what it tells you is that someone's coming. The shadow is not the reality, it's just the indication that the reality is on its way. You see. Now that's what this part of the Bible is saying of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. It wasn't the reality to save people, it was a shadow anticipating the reality that was to come. And by looking at the shadow, you could get a sense of what the reality was going to be like, but to get captured by the shadow was crazy. You don't get fixated on it. Once the reality comes, you get rid of the shadow. That's what this whole book is about. But what the shadow is doing, what the sacrificial system is doing, is saying there is something that's coming that's better, that's good. That's the great thing, the thing that will actually achieve the eradication of sin and the dealing with sin, the shadow. And now he pulls out another astonishing observation there in verse 5. He actually sees a similar thing being said in Psalm 40. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but um, uh, when Sean read for us, he read from Psalm 40, and verse 5 to verse 7 is a quote from that very psalm. Now, it's a quote from the Greek version of the Old Testament, something to bear in mind. But what you have is a very interesting thing in this psalm, where it's the psalm of a man called David who wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. But what he did was given by the Holy Spirit to prophetically anticipate the words that someone in the future would say were his words. So let me take you through. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ comes into the world, he said... Picking up the words of Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it's written about me in the scroll, I've come to do your will, my God. Now you read that and go, what does all that mean? Well, verse 8 to 10, the author explains it. So have a look at verse 8. First he says, this prophetic word that Jesus takes upon his lips first he says sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire and weren't pleased with them because they didn't actually work 
They weren't there to actually achieve the thing except to remind us of sin and be a shadow of the great coming. He's repeating the same thing back in Psalm 40. Sacrifices and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, though the law said you should do them, but they were only a reminder of sin and anticipating the reality to come. Verse 9. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now what's the first that's set aside in verse 9? It's the setting aside of sacrifice and offering. It's the setting aside of the Old Testament law. He he, he says, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the, the first to establish the second, that he would come to do the will of God. Now, what is the will of God? Well, here it gets crazy. What's the will of God for Jesus? Go back to verse 5. The will of God for Jesus was that he would inherit a body, that there'd be a body prepared for him. And so what the psalm in Psalm 40 anticipated was that there would be one coming who didn't have a body, a divine being, a spirit, who would say, you prepared a body for me to enter into the human world and become a man by taking on a human body. Now, that's a reference to the incarnation, the day when Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was born as a man with a body prepared for him, come to do the will of God, to set aside the sacrificial system, to come and do... What's the will that God had for this Son? Verse 10. And that, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will of God anticipated in Psalm 40 was that the sacrifices and offerings would be finished and that this eternal Son of God who would take on body would, by that very body, offer his body as a sacrifice so that once for all, sin would be dealt with. This is an astonishing thing that he sees all written in the Old Testament. There's another part that he sees written in the Old Testament. It's there, 15, 16, 17. It's a quote from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 anticipates that the Old Testament is not the answer as well. And it says there's a new covenant coming, a covenant that comes that will bring forgiveness. Go back and read Jeremiah 31. It's a powerfully important part of the Bible. But what you have here is um, uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system... um, it's a shadow, it never meant to solve the sin problem, it couldn't solve it because it's just blood of bulls and goats and it anticipates when the problem would be solved and the problem would be solved when comes the Son of God, the eternal Spirit, Son of God, comes and takes on a body and, and offers that body as a sacrifice by dying, by being killed so that his body broken would be the sacrifice his blood shed would enable forgiveness to come the establishment of this new covenant Um, the true sacrifice is coming the true sacrifice is the death of God's own son and the value of that death 
The value of the death of Jesus is infinite in its worth. There's a very, uh, there's a line from a great theologian that I've just is stuck in my mind. Um, it's a man called T.C. Hammond who uh, wrote theology many, many years ago. And um, he, he says this about Jesus' death. He says, the value of Jesus' death is in the infinite worth of his person. The value of Christ's death is in the infinite worth of his person. The value of the cross, the value of Jesus' death on the cross, is all about who it is who died. God's very son. The infinitely valuable, one by whom and through whom all things are made. And how much was his death worth? How much was his death worth? It was enough to pay for sins, the sins of the whole world. And the answer's there beautifully in verse 11. Look at this, verse, chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to made his footstool, for by one sacrifice... He is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Bang! The death of that one man was of such infinite worth that it puts an end to the sacrificial system. It completes and finishes and brings forgiveness. The consequence of this is that he sits down. And astonishingly, what we're told here is that not only does Jesus offer his body as a sacrifice. He's the priest who offers the sacrifice and he does it in the temple, which is his own body. Everything the Old Testament was anticipating, temple, priest and sacrifice, is caught up in the person of Jesus. God planned this from eternity past. It's radical and I think we can only properly get a sense of all of this when you compare it to every other religious option that's out there. So let me do this for us. I'm going to take you just through the four big religions. There's many other religions, but these are the ones that have got credibility in a major way. So let me run you very quickly through them, inadequately in many ways. But let me give you Islam. Islam. Islam uh, wrestles with the question of God and how a, a person here might get to be accepted by God. And it comes up with the five pillars of Islam. The five pillars. And let me give you what the five pillars are. It's the declaration of the Shahada. It's, the, it's prayer. It's almsgiving. It's fasting and pilgrimage. And what the uh, Quran talks about and the Islamic faith says, if you submit to God in doing those five things with devotion and give yourself to them, you might earn enough that one day God may be gracious and forgive you. But you've got to earn his gracious forgiveness, you've got to do enough. The shorthand way to get there, of course, is in holy war. But you've got to do these things. And you can never know if you've done enough, but you've got to keep pursuing it to see that you might get enough, that God might have mercy 
on the last day towards you. There's Islam. Let me give you Hinduism. Hindu has a system of getting to the final place of peace and it has three options you can choose. It's got the way of works, the way of enlightenment and the way of devotion. And you can choose whether you want to go the path of works or enlightenment or devotion. But here's the thing, if you're going to choose, if you're going to choose the way of works, you've got to do enough work so that in the next life you rise. If you're going to choose the way of knowledge, you've got to be enlightened enough. If you're going to choose the way of devotion, you've got to be devoted enough and you will rise through into the future. Buddhism. Buddhism, one way to perhaps think of this is through the idea of karma, which is in many ways part of uh, the Buddhist system, certainly some parts of the Buddhist system, that what you do attaches good or evil to your being so that when you die, the karma that you've created will take you up or take you down. Judaism. Today is about the law, keeping the law. Now, in all of this, let me just say, they're quite different, the five pillars, the three possibilities, the, the, the noble truths, the, the, the Ten Commandments, they're all quite different, but also all the same. All the religions of the world say the same thing, which is this. If you want to get to God or you want to get to paradise or you want to get to peace, whatever it is that you're pursuing after this life, if you want to get there, the key is you. The key is what you do. The key is your offering. The key is the devotion you bring. And you want to do it as well as you can, but it'll be imperfect and you hope... That is every religion on the planet except biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity, here's some questions for you, talks about an offering that's made to deal with sin. Here's the question, who brings the offering in biblical Christianity? Who brings the offering? God. I hope that's what I just heard. Yeah, what you have is God brings the offering of His Son, a body prepared for Him. We don't bring the offering. He brings the offering on our behalf. He doesn't wait for us to kill an animal, bring an offering, make the most expensive. He actually comes out from behind the curtain and gives Himself as the offering. The one who is the priest in the biblical New Testament system is Jesus Himself. The, the, the offering that's made, how many times is it made? Once. So powerful, so of infinite worth, it only needs to be done once. And it achieves what it sets out to achieve. The Christian religion says something entirely different from every other religion. Every other religion's repeating, do this, you've got to keep pursuing. Christianity says it's done was done 2,000 years ago on a cross when the one came receiving the body prepared and fulfilled all that was anticipated in the Old Testament as the priest offering himself his body a body of such value and worth once for all sin is dealt with unique among the religions one of the things that's compelled me about the Christian faith over many years and made me kind of be convinced again and again and again that we're dealing with something not man-made, 
but something given from heaven, God, is that when you look at all the religions of the world, they all say basically the same thing. That is, if you let a human to think up a religious system, he will, she will always think up a system that has me at the centre about what I do, how I have to. And it will just take different clothing. But what the Bible teaches is so counterintuitive, so completely unique from any other... It's so absolutely special, saying something so incredible, it could only have come into our world by the divine hand who revealed it to us. God comes. We are dealing with the truth here. Once for all. Now, who is this once for all sacrifice for? Who receives this once for all sacrifice? Who is made perfect, never having to worry about sin again in the sense of my righteousness before God? Who is made perfect? Well, verse 14 tells you. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever a certain group of people. Those who are being made holy. What the author is saying in a sense is this. The ones that have this once for all sacrifice applied to their lives are the ones that evidence, the ones that evidence a desire to be renovated, to have the power of sin reduced, to become more and more like Christ, to live under the Lordship of Jesus, being transformed more and more. What he's saying is that um, th- this, this once-for-all sacrifice to cover and deal with sin is not for the person who goes, awesome, ticket to heaven, I can go and live like I like now. He says, no, it's not for you. It's for the person who realises that sin is so terrible, I need to get rid of it, I'm coming to God to have it dealt with so that he can actually pay for it and his offering can cover it and wipe the slate clean so that I can now live from this point on under the Lordship of Jesus, seeking to obey the Lordship of Jesus, knowing I'm doing that as someone who has been forgiven, not to make it so that I might be forgiven. Forgiveness is the root from which a changed life grows. And so part of my question for you tonight is, are you someone that's evidencing in your life a desire to grow in holiness? Or are you seeing Christianity as a ticket to heaven? Are you growing in holiness? Because Jesus came to make you perfect, to rid you of sin's penalty, that you might be rid of its power. What do we do with all of this? Well, two things. You might be here tonight and you don't know this forgiveness. You don't know that uh, you, you don't know uh, this wiping clean, this once for all death that covers it. You don't know it. You, you're very aware tonight, though, that you're not right with God. You might be sitting there going, I, I know my sin in my life. If it's laid bare before God, I'm in trouble. I feel the guilt of it, I feel the shame and I keep trying to change my life and make it better so that God... Friends, if that's you tonight, this news tonight for you is such a great blessing because what I get to say to you tonight is, it's not about what you do, it's about what God has done for you. He has come, taken on a body and died to take upon himself all of your sin so that in his death it's all wiped clean if 
if you just would look to Him and not your own life. If you would just, but, uh, do three things. Say sorry, thank you, please. If you would but just say sorry, uh, I'm, Lord God, I'm conscious that my sin is an offence to you, I'm sorry. Please, please accept Jesus' sacrifice, his once-for-all sacrifice for my sin, that it might cover my sin, that it might wipe my slate clean, that it might cleanse me forever and make me perfect. Please let his death be for me. Um, Thank you for his death, that it would be for me. Did I just... Thank you. Please now help me live under his lordship. Please help me live under his lordship. Sorry, thank you, please. Sorry that I've offended you. Thank you for Jesus' once-for-all death that it might cover my sin. Please now help me live under your lordship. Have you done that? Have you done it? Because if you've come amongst us tonight and you haven't, tonight's a great night. It can happen right in a moment. You don't need to go through some special waiting. You don't need to have some emotional experience. You can just sit there in your chair and say, sorry, Thank you for Jesus' death to cover my sin. Please now help me live under your Lordship. You can do that straight away. And I trust that some of you might actually do it tonight. Sorry. Thank you, please. And you can know that your slate of sin is wiped clean, that you have no more to answer for before God because of his once-for-all sacrifice. But it might be tonight that you have done this. You've said sorry, thank you, please. You've, you've come to God at some point in the past and have put your faith in Him and not your own works. And, um, and I just I want to say to you um, a few things. Please, please appreciate that when you understand what this is saying about Jesus' death, His death cannot be repeated. It doesn't need to be repeated. There's nothing you can add to make it work better. There's nothing in your life that you can do to make you more worthy of this gift. Jesus, God did it graciously to you while you're an enemy. There's nothing you can do to make God more accepting of you. If Jesus' death has been paid for you, it's cleansed, it's done, it's fixed. If you were looking to Jesus, his death was enough, more than enough. It's of infinite value. So no sin is too great that it can't be dealt with by the death of Jesus. No shame is too crushing that it can't be cleansed from your life because of the death of Jesus. No hole that you put yourself in is too deep that he can't bring you out of it. And your task, brother and sister, tonight is to learn to live in the light of this incredible truth. All has been paid for. There's nothing to add. There's nothing more that you can do. If you continue to look to him and trust that his once for all death covers your sin it's covered you know christianity is a singing religion unlike other religions it's a singing religion we don't chant we sing and we sing because we've got much to sing about and rejoice in and what we have to rejoice in is the blessing of this once for all sacrifice there's nothing a human can do to make it better, to add to it. In fact, you offend God if you try by your feeble efforts to make it better. You diminish the greatness and sufficiency of his offering if you try to add things to it. And so the way to show evidence of the greatness and glory of this gift in your life is by seeking day by day to become more and more what he intends you to be. 
like Jesus. Listen to this beautiful song, which I think we're going to sing. And I don't know where to look to. Okay, listen to this. Listen to the words of this song. It's a beautiful song. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil the Lord's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? No. Could, could, could I be zealous constantly and never give up being zealous? Could my tears forever flow in guilt and shame? All for sin could not atone. None of those things can get you right with God. You must save and you alone. And the beautiful truth is that the Lord God has saved. He has prepared a body for his son to come into the world to make that an offering once for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the astonishing thing that you've done, your grace, your love, your mercy that you've lavished on us, that you prepared a body for your son to come into the world, to put aside the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, but to fulfil them in his death once for all. A death of such infinite value and worth that it deals with sin forever. So that all those who come saying, sorry, thank you, please, are made perfect. And I pray, please, amongst us tonight that there might be some who have made even that decision tonight, that you would um, stir them to give themselves to you and then follow through on that for the rest of their days. But that you might stir all of us to know the beauty, the greatness, the goodness of what you've achieved in the cross of Christ. Amen.